delusional. This is the word we use of those who believe things that don't actually correspond with reality. And again, to be clear, the word delusional, it comes from a Latin word meaning deceiving. And in the context of this word, uh, the, the, the meaning of the word delusional, it has to do with the delusional thinking that occurs whenever a person deceives themselves. So when we talk about being delusional, we're talking about someone who's engaging in self-deception by believing incorrect ideas which fail to correspond with reality. And while there are times when delusional thoughts are a sign of mental illness, more often than not, listen, the world is filled with people who suffer from delusional thinking simply because they doubt the word of God. There are many people in the world today who suffer from delusional thinking because they doubt the word of God. And listen, this is not only true of unbelievers, but this can also be true of believers who are struggling with their own doubts of God's word. With that being the case, uh, we're going to take some time today to examine our own lives by asking, am I embracing the delusional thoughts that are created by my doubts as I read the word of God? In other words, when I read the, uh, the word of God, if I start doubting what I'm reading, do I start engaging in delusional thinking? And with this question in mind, it'll help you to understand that the delusion of doubt results in wrong expectations. Uh, secondly, we'll see that the delusion of doubt results in wrong interpretations Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the delusion of doubt, it results in wrong assumptions. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Here we find the disciples of Christ, they're actually struggling with the delusion of doubt. And as you make your way to the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that we've actually spent the last two months studying Luke's account of the night when Jesus was persecuted and prosecuted and then put to death on a Roman cross. It was in our study last week when we learned about the way that the corpse of Christ was then claimed by Joseph of Arimathea. Then after witnessing where our Savior's body was buried, the female followers of Jesus, they started preparing the spices and the fragrant oils that were needed to complete the embalming process. And with this context in mind, I want to pick up our study of Luke's gospel account. We find ourselves here in the last chapter of this uh, gospel account. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 24. If you would look with me here beginning at verse 1. Here Luke writes now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then... As they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? What an incredible question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Here in the beginning of this chapter, we find the female followers of Christ. They're headed to the tomb, and, and they went there as soon as the Sabbath was over. And to put this into perspective, I should remind you that it was just the, 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 the previous Friday, just, just before the, the Sabbath day began, that's when the women started preparing the fragrant oils and all of the spices which were used to embalm the bodies of the deceased. And, and, and from this, some would suggest that these ladies were actually the original Spice Girls. I wouldn't say that, but some have suggested that. And to those people who would say this, I would encourage them to stop right now. Thank you very much. And now I know what you were listening to in the 90s. But seriously, as soon as the Sabbath was over, these ladies continued with their plan to prepare the corpse of Christ with the fragrant oils and the spices. And Mark elaborates on the details in the 16th chapter of his gospel account. It's here where Mark writes, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought, uh, bought spices <clears throat> excuse me, uh, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Now here in Mark's account, we see how these women uh, were not only expecting to go and anoint the cadaver of Christ Jesus, but they were also expecting to find the tomb sealed up with the massive stone that had been rolled in front of the door. But rather than finding this sealed tomb containing the corpse of Christ, they instead found an open tomb with a missing Messiah. They found an open tomb with a missing Messiah, and it's for this reason that they were completely confused. They were completely confused because this is not what they expected. Let's consider how Luke describes this here in our text today. Look with me again at Luke chapter 24. It's there in verse 2. There we learn that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. Now I want to stop right there. You see the phrase greatly perplexed. It's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who were at an entire loss of their thought process. It was used of those who were puzzled with doubts. And, and as we consider their preconceived expectations, well, it's no wonder that they were completely confused by the empty tomb that they found on that Sunday morning. Now, as we consider the confusion that they were experiencing there at the empty tomb, uh, we should take a moment to consider how the delusion of doubt will always result in wrong expectations. The delusion of doubt will always result in the wrong expectations. To explain what I mean by this, I want to take a moment to consider the prophetic promise that the Lord Jesus presented when he informed his disciples uh, about his death and his burial as well as his resurrection. With this as the focus, if you would hold your place here in this chapter, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel account. Let's turn back to Luke chapter nine, because it's here in Luke nine where we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually helping his disciples to understand that he would not only be rejected by the religious rulers there in Israel, but they would also call for his crucifixion. And not only that, but Jesus here assures them that he would rise up from the grave on the third day. 
I want to consider Luke's account of this conversation as found here in Luke chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 18, here we learn that it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him and he asked them saying, who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and, notice, be raised the third day. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping his disciples to understand that he was not only sent to suffer many things, uh, which in- included being sacrificed there on a Roman cross, uh, you know, according to the Old Testament prophecies. But, but what's even more is that he also informs them that he's going to rise from the grave on the third day. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, why were the female followers of Christ expecting to find the lifeless body of the Lord there in that tomb? Why were they expecting to find a closed up tomb with a dead Messiah inside? With this question in mind, I should remind you that it was actually Friday, just right after the corpse of Christ was entombed, that's when the women started preparing the spices and the fragrant oils for his burial. Mark even tells us that they had to buy more spices on Sunday morning because they didn't have enough, right? So they bought more spices on that Sunday morning as they uh, set out to complete this embalming process. And as they made their way to the tomb, they were fully expecting to find the lifeless body of the Lord there in that tomb. And all of these expectations were based on the fact that they were suffering from the delusion of doubt. They were suffering from the delusion of doubt. Think about it. If these disciples truly believed that the Lord Jesus would arise on the third day, then they wouldn't have been preparing spices. They wouldn't have been preparing fragrant oils. They, they wouldn't have been preparing. They, they wouldn't have gone Sunday morning and spent more shekels on more spices. And they certainly wouldn't have spent their time preparing the fragrant oils for the burial of the Lord's body because they would recognize that he would rise from the grave. They didn't really believe it now, did they? Rather than believing in the prophetic promise of Jesus, they were filled with doubt. And then uh, their doubts turned into delusion. And delusion led them to develop the wrong expectations, which then resulted in confusion once they were confronted with the reality of things. That the Lord was risen. With all this in mind, we should take a moment to consider how those who walk by faith with Jesus... Well, if we walk by faith with Jesus, then we're going to, you know, overcome those doubts. But, but if we fail to walk by that faith, well, then we start entertaining those doubts. And as we suffer from these delusional doubts that lead us to develop wrong expectations, it results in confused Christians. To prove my point, I want to consider the way, the way that James explains it in his little epistle. So continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of James, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's not uncommon 
for Christians to struggle with doubt. Please hear me when I say that. It's not uncommon for Christians to struggle with doubt. You know, according to one Barner Research poll from 2017, 65% of American adults who self-identify as Christian have doubted their faith at some point. 65% of American adults who self-identify as Christian have doubted their faith. Listen, if you're a believer who is constantly wrestling with doubts, then you might like to know you're not alone. Now, the enemy wants you to think you're alone. The enemy wants you to think that everyone else around you is totally solid in their faith, that there's no doubting in their mind, so, so you're the crazy person. You're the, you're the one who is all alone in your doubts. It's not true. 65%, if, if that's true of this room, then 65% of the people in here have struggled with doubts uh, at some point in time regarding their faith. Not only that, but there have been great leaders uh, throughout the church age who have also struggled with doubts regarding their faith. As a matter of fact, the great reformer, Martin Luther, he suffered from moments of doubt as he questioned his calling and at times even questioned his own salvation. The great apologist, C.S. Lewis, was also a believer who wrestled with doubts. And, and the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he was also a man who struggled with many doubts, which included doubts about his interest in Christ, doubts about his calling, doubts about his election, doubts about whether he would persevere in the faith. Yeah, he was a man who struggled with doubt. Without debate, doubt-filled thoughts have plagued the minds of many believers throughout the church age. Doubtful, you know, doubt-filled thoughts have plagued the church since the day when those women doubted the resurrection of Jesus and decided to prepare spices and fragrant oils for the corpse of Christ. And knowing that the majority of us struggle with doubts about our relationship with Jesus, well, it's my hope that those of us who do struggle with these doubts will take comfort in the fact that we're actually surrounded by saints who are experiencing the same struggle. At the same time, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that those who allow delusional doubts about the Lord to drive their decisions well, they're going to end up developing the wrong expectations about reality. It's not uncommon for us to struggle with doubts. The question is, are you allowing those doubts to drive your decisions? Because that's where the real problem is. We've been called to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so when we struggle with those, those doubt-filled thoughts, we, we, we need to grab a hold of those doubts. And, and bring them to the Lord and, and say, Lord, help me to think this thing through. Because if we don't, we develop the wrong expectations about the Lord and, and about our own lives. I want to consider how James addresses this here in James chapter 1. So look with me here. James chapter 1, verse 5. Here James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. 
Here in these verses, we find James helping his audience to understand that those who allow their doubts to override their faith in Jesus Christ, they end up becoming double-minded disciples. Double-minded disciples who are just being blown to and fro by you know, every doubtful thought that comes into their mind. The believers who allow themselves to be driven by their doubts, they end up vacillating between their commitment to Christ and their pursuit of incorrect expectations that we begin to develop as we place our personal opinions above the truth of God's word. Now this brings us to our second point because listen, the delusion of doubt will not only result in wrong expectations, but the delusion of doubt will also result in wrong interpretations of God's word. Now with this as the focus, I want to make our way back to Luke chapter 24. Here we find uh, the, the messengers of the Lord correcting the female followers of Christ. I want to back up here in Luke 24 and begin reading once again at verse 4. Here we learn that it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified And the third day, rise again. And they remembered his words. Here in these verses, we find Luke, he's describing the conversation that took place as two angels who here appeared to be men dressed in uh, shining robes. They began to challenge the doubts of the disciples. And in an attempt to clear up their confusion, the angels began by asking them a very simple question. They asked, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you seeking a living savior here in this place of death? The angels were asking, why were you expecting to find a lifeless body here in this tomb when the corpse of Christ has already risen from the dead according to the promise that he already presented you? That's right, the angels pointed to the promise that the Lord presented them while they were still back in Galilee. Notice again there in verse 7, here the angels reminded them about the day when Jesus declared, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. Now as we consider again this prophetic promise, we must agree that there's really little room for error when it comes to the attempt to interpret this text. You know, when it comes to the proper interpretation of what Christ was communicating, uh, we, we know that he's not pointing to the first day. We know that he's not pointing to the second day. We know that he's not pointing to the fourth day. He's pointing to the third day. Very simple. And I, I get it. I, I understand. There are some people who think that two is actually three. And, you know, we'll pray for those people. They struggle. But the third day is the third day. To sum this up with simplicity, listen, the Lord Jesus informed them that evil people were going to kill him on the cross, and then after his death, he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. How many ways is there to interpret this? The clear interpretation of his teaching 
is that Jesus would rise on the third day. And yet the female followers of Christ were clearly still confused. They were perplexed that he was risen on the third day. That being the case, it seems likely to me that the doubts of these disciples led them to an incorrect interpretation of what Jesus said. For example, you might not know this, but there was a mystical tradition among the Jews that led some to believe that the souls of the deceased would be reincarnated in different bodies if those souls had not yet completed their mission on earth. So it's possible that maybe some of these women were thinking that, oh, well, his mission isn't over. The messianic mission isn't over. And so his spirit probably went and was reincarnated in another body. Maybe that's what some of them were believing. There were also Jews who believed that the resurrection wouldn't occur until the messianic age when the dead would be then brought back to life there in the land of promise. And so maybe they were thinking that, well, he's not actually going to rise from the grave until the millennial kingdom. It's also possible that the women believed that Jesus wouldn't rise up from the dead until the very end of the third day. In order to explain my point, I want to remind you about a statement that our Savior made in Matthew chapter 12. It's there where he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if the, woman, if the women here were aware of this prophecy, and if they applied a wooden, literal interpretation of this text then they would have come to the conclusion that Jesus was going to be in the grave for 72 hours. And, you know, at the time of their arrival there at the tomb, it had only been about 40 hours since the moment when our Messiah was placed in the tomb. I'll remind you that uh, the body of Jesus was actually buried on Friday just before the beginning of the Sabbath. And then the women arrived at the tomb shortly after sunrise on Sunday. And so that makes this about 40 hours in the tomb. With this in mind, uh, you know, uh, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the ladies here were struggling to understand how Jesus could rise from the grave on the third day while also remaining three days and three nights in the earth. It might be that they were expecting to show up, find the body there, and it would remain there until the 72 hours was completed. And it's in similar fashion that there are many Christians in the world today who hold the same point of view. They, they try to prove that Jesus had to be in the grave for 72 hours and they'll spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy debating about the day when Jesus was buried and was it Thursday, was it Wednesday, did he rise on the first day? Uh, you know, they, try to, they try to make it you know, this wooden literal translation that it's got to be 72 hours. You can go and spend a whole lot of time on a whole lot of websites that have been dedicated to this debate. The problem, though, is that you know, those who insist that he must have been buried on Thursday in order to remain in the tomb for three days and three nights, uh, you know, the, what, what, would this, what, what this would mean then is that he actually rose on the fourth day and not the third day. And yet we know that he rose on the first day of the week, and, and so that just doesn't make any sense at all. So then how do, we, how do we resolve this? How do we resolve this idea that Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth uh, while rising up on the third day? 
Well, in order to solve this biblical conundrum we, uh, so that we can you know, have a proper interpretation of this text, it's important for us to consider the historical context that this statement is being made. And, and, and I want to apply then the historical grammatical rules of interpretation. You see, it's not enough to just know the grammar here. We also have to know the historical context of the statement. With this as the focus, it'll help us to grasp the cultural mindset of the first century Jew. You see, uh, within the context of that culture, a portion of a day was equivalent to the full day. At the same time, a person could refer to the fullness of an entire day when in fact they're actually just talking about a small portion of that day. I like the way that Chad Bird put it in the article that he wrote on this very topic. Here's how he put it, and I quote him here. In Hebrew... Three days and three nights need not consist of three full 24-hour periods. Three partial days will suffice. His argument is based on the cultural understanding of what the Jews meant when they would refer to a full day. It's sort of like uh, the person who says, you know, that they do work 24-7. You ever have those friends? I'm always working 24-7. And yet they only work, you know, what, eight hours a, a day, five days a week? You know, that's not 24-7. But, but, we, but we understand that 24-7 shouldn't be understood literally, but that they're just talking about how they're always working. Well, with this in mind, you know, those who insist that Jesus was then required to stay in the tomb for 72 hours, they have the wrong interpretation of this text because they don't understand the cultural norms of that period of time. And it's sad that there are many in the world today who are following in the footsteps of these women as they allow their doubts to drive them towards the wrong interpretation of God's word. And as they approach the Bible with a heart filled with doubts, you know, they begin to interpret uh, the text in an overly critical way or an overly dismissive way. And to prove my point, we should take some time to consider the interpretive criticisms that have been offered by those who allow their doubts about the verses that we're even studying today. And, and as well as other verses, they, they allow their doubts about Bible verses to become a basis for dismissing the entire Bible. I'll give you the example. It was during a debate back in 1996. That's when Dan Barker, who used to be a preacher, but then started, you know, considering all these doubtful things. And after a series of doubts, you know, he ended up becoming an atheist. And as an atheist, he engaged in a debate back in 1996. And one of his issues was presented in this way. And I quote him here. Who were the women who came to the tomb? Matthew said it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark said it was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Luke said it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women. John said Mary Magdalene. Now, now listen, what he's saying here is correct. It's true that we do, in fact, find factual discrepancies between all four Gospels. And, and he, he does a good job highlighting that here in, in this statement. And yet, listen, this is exactly what we would expect to find in eyewitness account of those who report what they actually witnessed as each person focuses on different details of the events that they're talking about. You realize that when you 
you know, see an event happen before your eyes, you will focus on the things that are interesting to you, while a person standing next to you will focus on different details of the same event. Therefore, when both eyewitnesses share their experience and talk about what they saw, both people are going to identify different details. That doesn't mean there's a contradiction. Listen, when Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, he wasn't contradicting Luke's account, which includes Salome, the mother of James and John, as well as Joanna, the wife of Husa. No one said each gospel writer was simply presenting the details that they were focusing on, which always doesn't include all of the details. To further explain my point, I want to consider another point of contention offered by this atheist, Dan Barker. He goes on to insist in his argument. He asks, who was at the tomb when they arrived? Mark said there was one young man. Luke said there was two men. Matthew said there was one angel. And John, the last writer, said there's two angels. See what's happening here? See how the myth is growing and getting more exaggerated? Now, now, as we consider what Dan Barker is saying here, listen, he's allowing his doubts about the veracity of these eyewitness accounts, he's allowing these doubts to lead him to the interpretive conclusion that the Bible must just be mythology. That's what he says. He says, see what's happening here? Now he's arriving at a conclusion. He's interpreting the text as being mythology, which is just being exaggerated with each retelling. Well, that's one interpretation, but is it the correct interpretation? Listen, what Dan Barker is failing to understand is that all of these accounts can be true without contradiction. All four gospel accounts can be true and without contradiction. And to grasp my point, I want to consider the solution that's offered by a cold-cased detective. His name is Warner Wallace, J. Warner Wallace. He was a cold case detective. And Detective Wallace, he addresses this biblical conundrum uh, by declaring this. He says, in order for there to be a true contradiction here, Matthew or Mark would have to say that there was only one angel. This was, of course, not the case. And there were two angels at the tomb of Jesus, and neither account said there was only one. That's right. Uh, There's not one gospel writer here who says there was only one angel and not two. That would be a contradiction. If Matthew says there were two and John says there was only one and not two, now you've got a contradiction to solve. But there is no such contradiction. And in order to further grasp this discrepancy, it'll help you to know that, you know, there's one angel who rolls away the stone. There was only one angel to roll away the stone, but there was a second angel present. And seeing how Matthew and Mark are both more focused on the angel who moved the stone from the front of the tube, well then, it's no wonder why they're only mentioning the one angel that they're actually focusing on, rather than zeroing in on that second angel who was also there. And with that being the case, Detective Wallace shares his confidence in the reliability of the gospel accounts, and he does this by declaring this. 
they display, speaking of the Gospels, they display the level of variation I would expect to see if they were true, reliable eyewitness descriptions. There were two angels at the tomb of Jesus. One rolled away the stone. Both helped Jesus from the tomb. The Gospel accounts describe the angels in response to the specific questions and actions under consideration. There is no contradiction in the New Testament accounts. Plain and simple. Here's a seasoned cold case detective who comes along and analyzes the eyewitness reports of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and says there are no contradictions. Are there discrepancies? Most certainly. Why? Well, because that's what we expect to find from true eyewitness accounts. People focusing in on various details of an event. But that, that is something that leads uh, Detective Wallace to believe that these are true eyewitness accounts rather than something that four guys cooked up around the campfire and then perfectly told exactly the same story every single time. And with that being the case, listen, the delusional doubts of Dan Barker led him to the incorrect interpretation of this text. In similar fashion, you know, there are many in the world today who allow their doubts to drive them to the wrong interpretation of the Bible. They read the Bible, they see something that causes them to start questioning and doubting, and then they allow those doubts to drive their interpretation as they try to make sense of the thing that they're questioning. And with that being the case, I encourage you to remember something that the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's there where he declares, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's right, there were more than 40 authors that were used to write the Bible, and yet each one of them was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is no individual or personal interpretation of the Bible. You don't get to come along and say, well, that's your interpretation, but my interpretation is this other thing. No, no, we need to find out what is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of the Bible because the Holy Spirit inspired the entire Bible. The Bible isn't open to our private interpretations and and our pet doctrines that we try to force upon the text. And yet it's sad to say that there are those who are twisting the scriptures to their own destruction. And with that being the case, it's just best for us to seek the wisdom of God as we study the scriptures. When we open up the Bible and begin to study the word of God, we ought to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our study time so that we understand what is the Holy Spirit's interpretation of the text. In this way, he will help us to avoid the incorrect interpretations that stem from delusional doubts. And with this as the goal, uh, we would just do well to become Bereans as we study the Bible. I'm, of course, referring to the people of Berea that Paul describes in Acts chapter 17. It's there where he, speaking of the people of Berea, says in verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. According to Paul, 
the Bereans, they were open-minded to the teachings of Paul. And they were more open-minded than the people there in Thessalonica because they were willing to consider Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. And, And while it's true that they were ready to receive the word with an open mind, They also spent time searching the scriptures for themselves so that they could put his teaching to the test against the rest of God's word. You know that the best commentary on the word of God is the word of God. Before you rush out to your favorite commentators, you ought to see what does the word of God say about the word of God. There's a great book, it's called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And it helps you to cross-reference verses so that you can see, oh, this verse over here uh, corresponds with this verse over there. And then you can begin to analyze verses against verses to to take in a full theology of of what is found in the scriptures first before going and seeing, you know, what some commentator said about the verse. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And while I encourage you to be ready to receive the word of God with an open mind, we should also be Bereans as we search the scriptures prayerfully, looking to the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we can overcome the delusional doubts that would result in wrong interpretations. Let's become Bereans who are searching the scriptures each and every day. And this brings us to our third and final point. You see, the delusional doubt that we suffer from, you know, will not only result in wrong expectations and wrong interpretations, but delusional doubt will also result in wrong assumptions. To explain my point, let's continue making our way here through Luke chapter 24. Here we find uh, the apostles now struggling with the delusion of doubt. And if you would, uh, let's pick up our study beginning at verse 9. Here we learn that they, that is the women, returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Now here in these verses we find the female followers of Christ are now returning from the tomb uh, to where the apostles and the disciples were hanging out and they they had the, the good news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But rather than believing the eyewitness reports of these women, the minds of the apostles were filled with doubt. They doubted the, the testimony of the women. And according to Luke here, the words of the women seemed like idle tales. Now, just to be clear, the Greek word rendered idle tales, well, it's used of those who are saying such foolish things that they appear to be stark raving mad. Yeah, the apostles uh, saw the women and, and saw their passion and saw their zeal and saw their excitement and they thought, these women have lost their minds. Simply put, their story sounded like nonsense to the men and it's for this reason that they simply rejected the report. Now, in order to understand the reason for their immediate disbelief, it'll it'll help you to know that the testimony of Jewish women there in the first century was not accepted as authoritative. As a matter of fact, you can look to the Mishnah where we learn that the oath of testimony is conducted with men and not women. 
Yeah, they, they wouldn't accept the testimony of a woman in, in a legal proceeding. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the apostles were just quick to doubt the testimony of these women. They, they were raised in a culture to think that, well, you know, you can't really trust what women say, so we're not going to accept their testimony, and it was just dismissed upon hearing. You know, with that being the case, it's interesting to note that it was the Lord's will to present himself to the women first. If this was being made up there in the first century, and they, if they wanted it to be a convincing story to the culture around them, then they would have created a story where Jesus reveals himself to the apostles first, to the men. You know, because men always tell the truth and women always lie. You know, that's a ridiculous thought. I know men. I, I know men that tell the truth and I know men that lie. And I know women. And I know women that tell the truth and I know women that lie. You know, for, for you know, guys to come along and say, well, we're going to create this patriarchy based on, you know, men because men can be trusted and women can't. It's ridiculous. But it's just as ridiculous for the third wave feminist to come along and say, you can't trust a man, but you have to believe women all the time. Both of those are just ridiculous because people tell the truth and people lie regardless of the gender. But I find it interesting here, especially in the context of this culture where women were rejected from you know, uh, presenting their testimony uh, in, in a legal sort of way, the Lord presents himself to the women first. And I believe that was by design. I believe that the Lord, our risen redeemer, decided to elevate the social status of women in the eyes of the rest of the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing and we should stay, you know, be on the same page with our savior. We ought to see men and women as equal and, and not think that, oh, all women are you know, liars or all men are liars. That's just incorrect thinking. Sadly, though, because of the culture here, the apostles were quick to dismiss the good news because you know, they assumed these women had lost their minds. And, and in this way, we can see then how delusional doubts will lead us to make wrong assumptions about those who are actually presenting us with the truth of God's word. There are times when people can come to us with the truth of God's word, and, and because we doubt the word of God, we can just dismiss them with wrong assumptions about them or about the text itself. And while it's true that delusional doubts will result in wrong assumptions about others, it's also true that delusional doubts will also result in wrong assumptions about the prophecies that we find in the Word of God. And in order to prove my point, I want to turn our attention back to Luke's Gospel account. I, I want to take one last look here at Luke chapter 24. Look with me there at verse 12. Here we learn that Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. He was marveling. He, he ran to the tomb in order to examine the scene for himself, and he marveled as he tried to figure out what had happened to the corpse of Christ. For the sake of clarity, that word marvel, well, it's defined as you know, a, a movie company that makes really boring movies that are just getting more and more tiresome, but, but that's more of a modern definition. Let's, let's get back to the original Greek here. This word is translated from a, a Greek word which was used of those who are astonished and amazed by something they weren't expecting. Peter marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed. 
as he discovered the tomb was missing the Messiah. As we consider Peter's reaction, we should take a moment to ask, why did Peter marvel? Why did Peter marvel? In order to answer this question, I want to consider John's account of the same exact event. And so, with this as the focus, turning your Bibles to John chapter 20. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the apostles were struggling to believe the report of the women because they didn't really believe in the literal fulfillment of the Lord's prophetic promise. They didn't really believe the women because they didn't really believe the Lord. And while we know for sure that they heard the Lord presenting the promise of his physical resurrection, which was to take place on the third day, their amazement was evidence that they allowed their doubts to lead them to the wrong assumptions about the prophecy of Jesus. I'll prove my point as we consider John chapter 20 here. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here John writes, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as yet... They did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now, as we consider these verses, I first like to point out that John took the time to make sure that we understood that he outran Peter. Yeah, yeah, these these are real dudes, you know. And and, and John's just kind of like, yeah, we ran together, but I outran them, you know. And and yeah, he looked in first, but I believed first. I was the first believer of us, you know. I just I love this kid. But listen, more importantly, he, he catches us up to speed on the fact that they did not yet know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Up until this point in time, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Oh, they heard the Lord. They were there in Galilee when they heard Jesus say, hey, I'm the, they're going to crucify me and I'm going to rise on the third day. They heard it. They had grown up studying the Old Testament prophecies about the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Messiah, and yet they still didn't know what it meant until after they saw the empty tomb. Now when John says they didn't know the scripture, he was using a Greek word that speaks of experiential knowledge. That word know, it speaks of those who come to understand something as they gain a greater perspective. And so while it's true that the apostles heard the Lord Jesus promising that he would rise up on the third day, it's also true that they were allowing their delusional doubts to lead them to the wrong assumptions about the prophetic promise of the Lord, which is why they were amazed and marveled when they found the tomb empty. 
And as a result of all of that, they assumed that the female followers of Christ had lost their minds after hearing the testimony about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe the women because they didn't believe the Lord. Similar fashion, there are many Christians here in the 21st century church who are allowing delusional doubts to lead them to wrong assumptions as they dismiss things like the rapture of the church or, or, or they'll start spiritualizing the literal return of Jesus Christ. You know, there are Christians in the world today who believe that we are in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Never mind the fact that the millennial reign will be a time when the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play by the cobra's den. No, well, they, they just, that's just spiritualized. We, we don't have to believe that literally is going to happen. You know, they, they believe that, that Satan is like bound right now because we're in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Listen, if Satan is bound right now, he's on a very long leash. Have you seen the world? And yet there are Christians in the world today, God bless them, you know, bless their hearts and all. But they believe that we are in the millennial kingdom of Christ. They've spiritualized the second coming of Jesus Christ and say there is no such thing as a rapture. Why? Well, because they've allowed delusional doubts to lead them into thinking the wrong things, making the wrong assumptions about the promises of Jesus Christ. And with that being the case, I want to point out something that we find in Revelation chapter 1. So turn with me to Revelation 1, and as you make your way to the first chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the apostles were amazed and astonished by the literal fulfillment of the prophecies that pointed to the Lord's resurrection on the third day. They did not believe in a literal interpretation of those promises. I don't know what they did with that information. I don't know if they spiritualized it or if they had some other idea of what the third day might mean, the third day is the millennial kingdom or whatever the case. But they did not believe in a literal rising of Jesus on the third day. And I have no doubt that much like the the apostles who were struggling to believe in a literal fulfillment of those promises, there's going to be many in the church who are amazed as they watch the end time prophecies being fulfilled. For example, you know there are many Christians who were shocked when the prophecy found in Ezekiel about the rebirth of Israel began to be fulfilled after World War II. See, many churches had embraced the belief system that the church is now Israel. Why? Because there was no Israel in Israel. The the Jews were not in their land of promise. They had been scattered into the world. And while there's a prophecy uh, about Israel coming back into the land and the dry bones coming back to life, the church said, nope, the church is Israel now. And then when Ezekiel 37 started being fulfilled, it's just like, whoa, hold on a second. Listen, Israel is Israel. The church is not Israel. All the promises that God made to Israel belong to Israel. We have to recognize that. I have no doubt that there are many who will marvel at Isaiah's prophecy on the day when Damascus is finally wiped from the earth because that day is coming. And while someone might spiritualize that or dismiss it, it's going to happen. Not only that, but we're watching Ezekiel's prophecy being fulfilled as Russia, Iran, and Turkey begin to form their confederation, which is revealed there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And not only that, but we're also currently watching everything being put into place for the globalist government, which is going to eventually at some point in time be ruled by the Antichrist. 
We're watching all these things literally coming to pass. And it's for this reason that I encourage you to embrace the promise that Jesus presents, you know, through John here in uh, the book of Revelation. If you would look with me here at Revelation chapter 1. I want to begin reading there at verse 1 where John declares the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle John, he's assuring his audience that the Lord has promised to bless those who will read this book with the goal of understanding the content, all with the, with the plan of keeping the words that have been revealed here in this prophecy. There's a blessing for those who will study end-time events with the desire of knowing what will unfold in the future. And knowing that the prophecies that we find in the book of Revelation are imminent, which is to say that they could begin to take place at any minute, well, we'd all do well to set aside any delusional doubts that would lead us to, to the wrong assumptions that, well, we can just explain all of this away or it's not really going to come to pass and the Lord is going to delay his return. You know, there's a warning against Christians who come to the conclusion that the Lord's going to delay the day of his return. And so they just become worldly believers. The Lord actually warns against that. If delusional doubts have been leading you to these assumptions, then I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 11. It's there where he declares, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and he blesses those who set out to understand end time prophecies so that we can apply these truths to our lives. Christian, listen, we haven't been called to follow our delusional doubts that lead us to start dismissing the word of God. No, we've been called to walk by faith because without faith, it's impossible to please our Lord and Savior. And while it's possible that the Lord Jesus might delay the day of the rapture for another thousand years, it's very possible. The rapture of the church might not happen for another thousand years. We could be dead and, and in heaven you know, long before the rapture of the church ever happens. That's, that, that, that might be. But at the same time, according to the scriptures, the rapture of the church could happen in the next minute. Good. And we ought to live with that truth in mind, not dismissing it with doubts. In this way, we would avoid the delusional doubts that would lead us to make the wrong assumptions uh, about those who would challenge us to publicly profess the resurrection of Jesus Christ, much like the women who were so excited there at the tomb that they rushed back to tell the apostles and the disciples about what they had witnessed. Would it be to God that we would have that kind of passion? That every day that we would wake up and just imagine ourselves finding an empty tomb, discovering that Jesus has risen, and just wanting to go into the world to share this good news with those who will listen. 
as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to revisit the question that I presented at the beginning of the study. And the question again is this, am I embracing the delusional thoughts that are created when I start doubting the word of God? Am I allowing those delusional thoughts that are rooted in the, the doubts of God's word? Am I, am I allowing those to drive my decisions? Am I, am I allowing the delusion of doubt to create wrong, wrong expectations about reality? Am I allowing the delusion of doubt to create wrong interpretations of God's word? Am I allowing the delusion of doubt to create wrong assumptions about others? If so, I encourage you, set aside those doubts by faith. Set aside those doubts that would lead us to question the word of God and instead, let's walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ according to the doctrinal instructions of God's word. And as we do, listen, our risen redeemer will help us to gain the victory over every delusional doubt. Let's pray.